If you have your Bibles with you today, open them up to the fifth chapter of Ephesians. This is a hands-on experience. So if you don't put your hands on your Bible, you may not get the experience. So, uh, now really, if you do have a Bible, please open them up. You will need them. If you've got a pen and paper, you may want that too. Um, this is an extremely technical sermon. I, I'll try to uh, stay away from these sermons and uh, save them for save them for times where it's just one-on-one conversation or in a learning setting or something like that. But you have to teach the text when you get to it, and so that's what I'm doing today, and I think that's the way that it needs to be taught. If you have a piece of paper and a pen or something like that, jot down notes, write down uh, chapter references, things like that. And by all means, when it's over with next week, tomorrow, Whatever. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to ask me. I've studied this. I've studied this sermon for a while now, and uh, it took me a long time to understand it. So probably won't be real easy to get it across in one message. But I'm going to do my best. Yahweh willing, we'll all we'll all walk around all the way from here with with a new understanding about something. So it's been a little while since I taught, so I'm looking forward to this tonight. The more I study. The book of Ephesians, the more I understand the Bible as a whole. Paul's writings are uh, so intertwined with understanding understanding of the rest of the Bible, it's amazing. It's amazing to me. And such is the case with most authors throughout the Bible. When the apostles and the prophets wrote their letters to the church or to the nations of Israel, they weren't speaking to uninformed people, but rather people who knew and understood their ancestry the way of life of their people, the various laws within the Torah, if not all the laws within the Torah, okay? And um, they they understood what was expected of them in the sense of complete loyalty and reverence to Yahweh. Most of these people knew that. So as we read the Gospels, the epistles, or the prophets, we must understand that there is a general vein by which every author writes. They should all be conclusive when, when dealing with the same context, for the most part. And also, whatever passage that we're studying, we should interpret each passage in light of what has been formally written, at least contextually. Okay. Now, I say all that to prep you, to some degree, for this teaching. I do that for a reason. Like I said, it's incredibly technical, but I have done my best to simplify it as much as I, as I possibly, can, possibly can. Keep this in mind. Always keep this in mind. In order to find nuggets, gold nuggets, you have to dig. Fool's gold is easily found, but priceless gems are hidden and they require effort to uncover. Okay, Anybody can find fool's gold lays on top of the ground. But if you want to find something good, you're going to put forth some effort. And I don't know about you, but I don't want it easy if what I get is worthless. I don't want it easy. So rather give me the labor and give me the great reward. I don't mind the labor as long as what I'm getting out of it is is good. With that being said, let's get started and see if we can uncover something in the Word today. Let's read Ephesians chapter 5. And for the sake of context, we're going to read chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 1, it says, Therefore be imitators of the Almighty as dearly loved children, And walk in love as the Messiah also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to the Almighty. 
But sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you, as is proper for saints. And coarse and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather given thanks. For no one recognizes this, no sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of the Messiah and of the Almighty. Let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for because of these things the Almighty's wrath is coming on the disobedient. Therefore do not become their partners, for you once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light results in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, discerning what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. Everything exposed by the light is made clear, for what makes everything clear is light. Therefore it is said, Get up, sleeper. And rise up from the dead, and the Messiah will shine on you. Now, I just want to deal with one verse here today. That's verse 14. However, we will still use a lot of other scriptures in effort to understand this one verse. By show of hands, how many people have read what I recommended that you read last time I taught? Okay, a few of you. So I'm thankful for that because I've had some people, I know some people did because they text and asked for the chapters and things like that. So I'm glad you went back and read them. If you have, great. You'll have a head start. If you haven't, I'll do my best to catch you up and get you in the loop. So I'd ask you guys to go ahead and read Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19, Isaiah 59, a whole chapter, and Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 2. The reason that I suggested that you read those chapters and verses is because I believe that that's where verse 14 of Ephesians chapter 5 is derived from. If you remember, I told you in my last sermon that verse 14 of chapter 5, which is quoted, Get up, sleeper, and rise up from the dead, and the Messiah will shine on you. I told you that it was not in the Bible outside of Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 14. I wasn't lying to you. You will search endlessly to find it word for word. It's not there. However, Paul includes the text here in his writing to the church in Ephesus. So for me, there were a few questions that I needed answers to when I was studying this verse, and I've studied it for a while. The first question is, where does this quote come from? That's what I wanted to know. Anytime I see a quote in the New Testament that is supposedly from the Old Testament, I go to the Old Testament to see what the author meant with its original intent. That helps me understand what's going on in the New Testament. So I want to know, where does it come from? I looked at the Aramaic Targums. We looked at the Greek Septuagint. I looked in the Hebrew, and it doesn't say this anywhere in in those passages. And so I was curious. So the first question is, I want to know where it comes from. The second question was, I wanted to know who wrote the quote. And the third question is, what does the quote mean within its context, in light of its context? What does the quote mean? Would you guys like to know the answer to those questions? Sure. Yeah. Well, I've done some digging. I've done some digging. I've put forth some effort, and I think I'm ready to present you some gems that I have found. Okay? So question number one, where does the quote come from? If you remember the last time I taught, I told you that the longstanding consensus of scholarship regarding this quote in chapter 5 is that Paul is including an early church hymn in his letter to the church in Ephesus and using the letters, I mean the lyrics of the hymn, to help the flow of his argument of walking in light. Most scholars believe that this was an uh, old, old hymn that was sung by the, the very first church 
Paul was aware of the lyrics of the hymn, and he used the lyrics of the hymn. This is what most scholars believe. They used the lyrics of the hymn, some of the lyrics of the hymn, in efforts to shed light on his argument here to the people in the church in Ephesus. Okay? Most scholars believe that because of its Christianized wording and hence a pre-existing tradition that it must have been a hymn produced and sang by the early church. The bad part about this idea is that I believe it comes from shallow digging. I don't believe they dug much at all to find this. I can't even find the hymn. I can't find it anywhere. Okay, so, so this, is just, this is just a theory of theirs. And therefore, to me, shallow digging produces cheap nuggets. And I don't want cheap nuggets. So in other words, I think that theory is weak, and they need to dig a little deeper. When scholars take the easy way out, they get fallible results. So do we. So do we. If we take the easy way out, we get fallible results. What follows is a loss of textual validity and often a diminished depreciation or appreciation of the scriptures. Okay? Also, in this case, it deprives Paul of his understanding of the Hebrew text and it makes it look like he must have had to adopt a church hymn in order to get his point across. That's pretty weak to me. I think Paul's a very educated man, extremely educated. So I disagree with the theory, and it's my hope today to offer another theory of how Paul came up with this quote and to prove that it is, a, it is derived from the Scriptures, used at a most opportune time, and actually very contextual when comparing to what was previously written by Paul. Right? I believe what we have here is a what we call a Midrash Pesher text. What that is, is where an author of the Bible uses a text or various texts from a previous writer. He comprises or rearranges them and causes them to fit into his writing in efforts to shed light on what he's saying. It's kind of like Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8, if you remember back when I taught on that. In that text, Paul takes Psalms chapter 68 and verse 18, which was spoken about Moses, and he, re- he rewords it and applies it to the ministry of Yeshua. Now, I won't go into all that again. You can go back and study that if needed, but I believe that this quote is just like that one. You can, uh, you can go back and check that sermon out and listen to it. it is, this, this quote is comprised of two Isaiah passages. One is Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 19, and the other is Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 and 2. I believe that Paul is using, using those two passages and rearranging them a little bit to fit into his letter. So uh, let's turn to Isaiah and we'll read those passages. We'll start in Isaiah chapter 26. Isaiah 26, and I'm going to read verse 19. Your dead will live, their bodies will rise, Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust, for you will be covered with the morning dew, and the earth will bring forth the departed spirits. All right, now let's read Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 and 2. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of Yahweh shines over you. For look, darkness covers the earth, and total darkness the people's. But, the, but Yahweh will shine over you, and his glory will appear over you. Now, neither of those verses say, get up, sleeper, rise up from the dead, and the Messiah will shine on you. Like Paul quotes in Ephesians. And the Isaiah verses definitely, definitely do not mention the Messiah, right? 
Well, the first two lines in verse 14 of Ephesians chapter 5 have a pretty close resemblance to Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 19, even though they're reversed in, in form and somewhat different. <clears throat> you guys may want to keep your fingers right there in Isaiah 26 and Isaiah 60. We'll go back and forth several, several times. Now, the text in Isaiah 60 verses 1 and 2 is that there are some conceptual parallels with the mentioning of the light of Yahweh, the rising and shining of on His people who live or dwell in darkness. And both texts in Isaiah mention rising and arise. So it seems that Paul gathers that theme from both texts. Okay. However, this is still no word-for-word quote. And we're gathering two phrases from two completely different chapters of the book of Isaiah, which is not common. You shouldn't do that. That's not good Bible study necessarily. Okay, as a general rule of thumb, that's not what we do. We don't jump around in the Bible and pick a verse here and pick a verse there in time altogether. It's not, not good Bible study. So is this quote from something Paul has read from the writings of old, or is it something that Paul is just making up? Well, to answer that, I want you to look at the first, the first part of verse 14 in Ephesians chapter 5. Do you see where it says, Therefore it is said... Well, there are only two places in Paul's epistle where that occurs in this epistle. Okay? Guess where the other one is? Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4 and verse 8. What does it say at the very beginning? It says, For it says. Alright. There are these are introductory formulas, and they only occur here in chapter 4 and verse 8 and chapter 5 and verse 14. We have already studied 4 and 8, and we've determined that Paul did a midrash on the text of Psalm 68 and verse 18. That's what I was talking about a few minutes ago. So why couldn't he do the same thing here in chapter 5 and verse 14? This, is at least, this at least indicates that the two texts should be treated similarly, especially since they are the only two quotes in Ephesians that are introductory, I mean introduced formally. Okay. By the way, the more accurate translation from the Greek should read, Wherefore, he says. That would be more accurate if we go back to the Greek, all right? Also, Paul uses this introductory formula often throughout his writing when quoting the Old Testament, but he never uses it when he's quoting traditional material, all right? So this would be a point against verse 14 being a traditional hymn. That's the idea. I'm trying to, I'm trying to disprove or debunk that theory, all right? I believe that this is surely a suggestion that Paul is making to point his audience to Scripture and not towards tradition. That's the reason he says, therefore he says, or therefore it, it is said. So have we answered the question yet? Does Paul's wording here in verse 14 of chapter 5 come from Isaiah or a traditional hymn? Well, I think we've shed some light on it, but I definitely don't think we can conclude that we've answered the question. And as I've said, I believe that Paul wrote the formula here in efforts to portray a message to the audience. And I believe it was his wording, not a hymn. But let's look at the phrase contextually and see if we can decide whether or not Paul wrote it to help with the context of his letter to the church in Ephesus. In the book of Isaiah, at least in chapters 26 and chapter 60, where we've been, Isaiah's concern was for the enactment of the covenantal curse against Israel and Judah, as well as the promise of Yahweh's renewed blessing after the curse was over. If you've read the book of Isaiah, you will get this. And if you have not, you need to go back and read it so you'll get it next time it's taught, okay? But if we read Isaiah, we would see that the result of disobedience to the covenant was what? 
Exile. Exile is what happens. That's, that's, the, that's Yahweh's punishment. That's the result of breaking the covenant. Okay? We would also see that he elaborates, talking about Isaiah, he elaborates on how Israel and Judah would be purified and atoned for. Even though it seems that Yahweh had left them for good when he put Israel away and put Judah away, it seems like Yahweh had left them for good. Isaiah seems to reassure them that they would be delivered by him, speaking of Yahweh, their king, and they would be returned to their homeland. Okay, that's kind of the general theme throughout Isaiah, if you, if you read it. He also elaborates through chapters 59 and chapter 60 about how Yahweh would transform, would transform his returned people and cause them to finally be faithful to him. That's in Isaiah chapter 59 and in verse 21. Okay, this seems to be the theme throughout these chapters of Ephesians. But what about I mean, through these chapters of Isaiah? But what about chapter 26? What about chapter 26? I told you that the first two lines of Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 14 were pulled or at least looks like they were pulled from Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 19. The context of the verse is the prophet's recognition of the failure of Yahweh's people to fulfill their covenant. By the way, let me make mention of this. I don't want to get off on rabbit trails, but the covenant is not the Torah. Okay? The covenant is not the law. The covenant is the fact that Israel said, all this that Yahweh commands of us, we will do. That's the covenant. Yahweh says, you do this and I will be your mighty one. They said, we will. That's the covenant. Not, not all the Torah ties into it, but that's not the covenant. The covenant is in Exodus chapter 24 and verse 7, if you're interested. And the covenant is the fact that Israel said, I will. Okay? So the context of this verse is the prophet's recognition of the failure of Yahweh's people to fulfill their covenant. Yahweh's people being Israel and Judah. All right. In the two verses prior to verse 19 in Isaiah 26, Isaiah gives the example of a woman in labor to paint a picture of Judah's struggle. All right. So if you look at Isaiah 26, starting in verse 17, they pursued righteousness, but the labor produced nothing. And Isaiah says this, he says, As a pregnant woman about to give birth rice and cries out in her pain, so we were before you, Yahweh. We became pregnant, we writhed in pain, we gave birth to win. He explains this verse as a failure of Judah and Israel in their attempt to bring salvation to the earth. Israel was to be a light unto all nations, and instead of shining like a light, they were dark and they were cold. But because of Yahweh's great mercy and faithfulness to his people, Isaiah writes, verse 19. It says, your dead will live and their bodies will rise. See, the hope of resurrection is intimately tied to the coming back of the exiles. See, Yahweh will put Israel away by the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. That's what's going to take place. He's going to put them away by the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. But he's going to bring them back. That's what Isaiah saying in uh, 26 and 19. The reason we know this is because in the very next chapter, Isaiah explains how he will purify Israel in verses 8 and 9. So if you turn to Isaiah chapter 27 and verses 8 and 9, he says, You disputed with her by banishing and driving her away. He removed her with his severe storm on the day of the east wind. I believe that severe storm is Nebuchadnezzar coming in and destroying Jerusalem. Okay, He removed her with the with his severe storm on the day of the east wind. Therefore, Jacob's iniquity will be purged in this way, 
And the result of the removal of the sin will be this. When he makes all the altars of stones like crushed bits of chalk, no Asherah poles or incense, incense altars will remain standing. So after Israel is purged and the nation is rid of its idols, Yahweh says, on that day, Yahweh will thresh grain from the Euphrates River as far as the Wadi and Egypt, a Wadi of Egypt, and you Israelites will be gathered one by one. And on that day, a great trumpet will be blown, and those lost in the land of Assyria will come, as well as those dispersed in the land of Egypt, and they will worship Yahweh in Jerusalem on the holy mountain. Okay? After he purifies Israel and brings her home, what is Israel to be? The light. The light that she was supposed to be to start with. That's the whole reason for purification. That's the reason that he sends her away. It's because she wasn't the light. She fell into idolatrous worship and all that stuff. He pushed her away. And so now he's going to bring her back, Israel. And he's going to, he's going to make her the light that she's supposed to be. Hence the reason for verse 6 in Isaiah 27. In Isaiah 27, verse 6, it says, In days to come, Jacob will take root, Israel will blossom, and bloom and fill the whole earth with fruit. I hope you see some of the parallels with Israel's disobedience and Yahweh's saving grace compared with what Paul is dealing with with the new converts and Yahweh's saving grace. All right? Moving on. It says, uh, Now the third line of chapter 5 and verse 14 of Ephesians is most likely drawn from Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 and 2. It says, Arise, Shine for your light has come and the glory of Yahweh shines on you. For look, darkness covers the whole earth and total darkness the people. But Yahweh will shine over you and his glory will appear over you. Now this passage is is a description of Yahweh's grace towards Israel. But in order to understand their need for the redemption, you will have to you would have to read Isaiah chapter 59 along with Isaiah chapter 60. See, just a few verses earlier, in chapter 59, verses 2 through 8, Israel was full of violence, falsehood, and injustice. And because of their wickedness, Yahweh kept His promise of of the covenantal curse that is spoken about in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 29. He darkened them and their understanding. Yahweh doesn't just keep the good promises. He keeps the bad ones too. He keeps all of them. So um, that's what Isaiah reminds them of in Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 10. However, because in verse 16, he sees that there was no one to save him, he brought forth salvation by his own hand. Yahweh says, I will save him. I will do this. He brought, brought forth salvation by his own hand. He dons, Yahweh dons the battle raiment and, and saves him himself. The way he does this is in verse 20 of chapter 59. He says, the Redeemer will come to Zion and those in Jacob who, in, and to those in, Jake, in Jacob who turn from their transgressions. And he makes with them a what? A new covenant. A new covenant. Verse 21. Therefore, the coming of Yahweh's light in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1, and I know this is technical, guys, but therefore the coming of Yahweh's light in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1, refers to the salvation that Yahweh provides for His people in Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 20. But the effect of the light is not just so that they are merely bathed in light, that's not the idea, but rather that they, are, that they emanate light, betraying an inner transformation that reverses their past 
unfaithfulness. The effect then becomes that Israel will serve as delight to the whole earth as they were supposed to do to start with. Remember, Yahweh said in Isaiah 59 and verse 16 that there was no man to intercede for the people, so he did it himself. Do you see any kind of correlation between Isaiah and Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus? In both Isaiah passages, the symbolism of ethical awakening, darkness dispelling light, and worldwide blessings resounds. I believe the passage from Isaiah permeates Paul's argument and persuasion in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 14. Not only does Paul give his understanding for verse 14 from Isaiah, but he seems to use Isaiah throughout his whole letter. In chapter 2 and in verse 17 of Ephesians, you don't have to turn there, I'm just talking, but in chapter 2 and verse 17 of Ephesians, Paul describes Yeshua's ministry to both Gentiles and Jew as a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 57 and verse 19. In where Isaiah says, Yahweh says, Peace, peace to the one who is far or to the one who is near, and I will heal him. In chapter 4 and verse 30 of Ephesians, Paul warns of grieving Yahweh's Holy Spirit. And so does Isaiah in chapter 63 and verse 10. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 14 through 17, Paul talks about a saint's armor. Okay? He talks about the belt of truth in verse 14, echoing the heir of Jesse, echoing what the heir of Jesse will wear. In verse 15, he tells the church to have the readiness given by the gospel of peace as shoes for their feet. The image is closely related to the description of the runners returning to Jerusalem with the good news of the exiles and their return from Babylon in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 9 and Isaiah 52 and verse 7. And last but not least, Paul instructs the believers in verses 14b and in verse 17a of Ephesians chapter 6 to put on the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, and he is directly drawing this from the words of Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 17 which is speaking of Yahweh. Folks, do you think that Paul may have Isaiah on his mind when he's writing the letter to the Ephesians? I believe so. I would think that that's exactly what's going on, and I believe the influence of Isaiah was great in the writing of the verse and the reason for it. I would say we probably answered two of the three questions. Number one, who wrote the verse? Was it Paul, or is he copying a hymn? I believe that it was Paul, obviously. Number two, where does it come from? I believe that it is derived from the book of Isaiah. Not as a direct quote, but a compilation of several verses, particularly Isaiah 26 and verse 19, Isaiah 60 verses 1 and 2. As I said starting this message, I believe Paul has used these texts and applied them to the new converts in Ephesus. Which brings us to our third question. What does the quote mean? What does it even mean? And how does it fit in the context of the book of Ephesians, or the letter to the Ephesians. We'll start with the context. We have seen the context of Isaiah, okay? I think we've seen the context of Isaiah. Abandoning of Yahweh's covenant, exile, redemption, and reunification. That's the context of what Isaiah is talking about. Well, it should be quite noticeable that the same pattern, that of prior sin, leading to divine intervention and redemption, 
resulting in ethical transformation and missional witness surrounds Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 14. It's all over it. We've been studying the book of Ephesians for a long time now. And if you're staying with me, then the, then the context from the fourth chapter on, it's, we're all over it. We're all over it. Talking about the people who were in darkness, been delivered into the light, things like that, okay? And it really sums up Ephesians as a whole. Like the Israelites before the exile, Paul's readers, pre-conversion lives were characterized by sin and depravity as they lived in accordance with the curse of the world. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2. As a matter of fact, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, Paul says that they were dead in their trespasses and sin. Right? In chapter 5 and verse 8, he says, For you were darkness. In chapter 4 and verse 18, he says that they were darkened in their understanding and alienated from Yahweh. Spiritual exiles, if you will. They were separated from Yahweh. They had, they had the curse of Genesis 2 and verse 17 on them. They were sinners and they were as good as dead. Not only had they participated in the darkness, they were the darkness. How about this? In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 14, Paul doesn't mention darkness at all. But just before that, in verses 6 through 13, he mentions it twice. I wonder where he gets it from. Maybe Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 2 speaks a lot about darkness. I hope you see what Paul is doing. He is reflecting directly on Isaiah 60, verses 1 and 2, and likely chapter 59, and characterizing the Ephesians' pre-conversion Gentile state as the same of that which plagued Isaiah's audience, people who lived in the gloom of Yahweh's wrath. The parallel with the exile of Israel is death for Paul's audience. The people who sinned, Isaiah says you're going into exile because you're wicked. Paul's saying... You're going to die. Eternal death. The the parallel is there. We're just talking about two different venues. Okay? The redemption plan for scattered Israel is being paralleled by Paul with the work of Christ. See, in Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 20, Isaiah said a redeemer would come. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7, Paul says, In him we have redemption through his blood. The redeemer has come, folks. Once again, he's come to Zion. This time... With his own blood. Like it says in chapter 5 and verse 2. But because Yahweh has joined both Jew and Gentile into one new man. In Ephesians 2.13 through 22. Paul is able to include these Ephesian converts as part of the salvific event. Even though they were dead. Ephesians 2.1. And far off. Ephesians 2.13. They too are included in this redemptive act. Just like Isaiah said it would happen. In Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 19, Paul is warning the new converts of the same thing that Isaiah warned Israel, the Israelites of. And church, this is our warning. I think we should take heed. So I believe the context is similar. Paul's reason for using Isaiah's writing is perfectly warranted. I want to mention something else here just so that I cover it. I'm not sure... But I am just about sure that somebody somewhere has this question. How many people have noticed the way that Paul has alternated the word Yahweh for Messiah in verse 14? In Isaiah 60 and verse 2, it says, But Yahweh will shine on you. However, in Ephesians chapter 14, Paul says, The Messiah will shine on you. 
Paul substitutes Messiah for Yahweh here. In doing so, in doing this, he repeats exactly what he did in chapter 4 and verse 8 where he replaces the thought of Moses with the Messiah. The Messiah is used in Paul's Midrash as the fulfillment of the prophecy. Okay? However, there are not, these are not bad reassignments. Paul, Paul's not doing anything bad here. He, they're not bad reassignments. They actually assume a Christological mediation of Yahweh or Moses' actions. This is actually common in ancient writing. Over and over we see Yahweh's actions accomplished in, through, or by someone else or the Messiah. The same way Moses parted the Red Sea, but Yahweh said, I'll part the Red Sea. Right? Same thing here. Paul presents Yahweh's actions throughout the whole epistle as being accomplished by the Messiah. It says, For Yahweh blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. In whom? In Christ. He chose us in Him. He predestined us to be adopted through Him. So it's Yahweh's plan and Yeshua is the vehicle by which, it, well, by which He makes it take place. Rarely ever do you see Yahweh act on His own. It doesn't happen that much throughout the Scriptures. He always uses an agent. Always uses an agent. I hope everybody sees that. Now to finish our last question, what does it mean, get up, sleeper, and rise up from the dead, and the Messiah will shine on you? I believe it means that you were once dead in your trespasses and sins, but you have been delivered. So rise up from the dead and let the Messiah's light shine on you. But let it fill you. Don't just let it shine on you. Anything that becomes visible contains light. As I said earlier, it's not just for us to become light, but that that we might shine forth light, that it might radiate from within us. Okay? With the new light, we will expose darkness and we will make known fruitless deeds. It's our light given to us that we might accomplish in the world what Yahweh intended for Israel to do in the beginning. So in closing, let me say this. Essentially, Paul is utilizing the common Jewish Jewish exegetical method known as a Midrash Pesher, including his interpretation of the text within its citation. That's what that is. He interprets the two passages from Isaiah with his larger context in mind. Paul understands Isaiah better than any of us understand Isaiah. We don't have a clue. When we read it, we can get what we can get out of it, but but that's life to Paul. He understands it. It's in him. It's real. So when he sees the Messiah filling the roles of Isaiah, what Isaiah spoke about, or how how what Isaiah talked about Israel about, he sees it working in the church in, in, in Ephesus, and he says, you're no different than the children of Israel. You're, you're, you're doing the exact same thing they are in the same way that Isaiah said that you would be exiled and the curse would be put on you. I'm telling you that you won't have salvation. You were in the dark just like the Israelites were in the dark, but now they've been exiled, brought, toward, brought back by Yahweh. You've been brought back by His Son. You've been redeemed the same way. The Redeemer that was promised to, be, to come in Isaiah chapter 59, 59, He's come now. He's come now. You've been redeemed. He interprets these two passages from Isaiah with its larger context in mind, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Basically, including the mystery of the prophecy while citing the mystery. When we started today, I told you that most scholars believe that this is part of a hymn or an extra-biblical material that was used by Paul. 
And I guess this sermon would have been a whole lot easier if I'd have just went along with that. It would have, it would have been, it would have been real easy. And I probably have confused some people, and uh, maybe lost some people in the in the sermon. And so, if if I have, I'm sorry. I tried my best to simplify this. However, I hope that I have proven different today. I'm not saying that New Testament authors don't use extra biblical material. They do, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's completely okay. However, when correlations in imagery and theme can be discerned between two contexts, the Scriptures must take precedence over hypothetical reasoning. You have to use the Bible. You can't just guess at this stuff. You can't say that sounds good, or I don't really want to do my homework. I don't really want to dig for that gem. Let's just take the easy way out. You have to study these things out. So this is my conclusion. The pattern of Isaiah's rhetorical argumentation consists of prior sin leading to Yahweh's redemption, resulting in ethical transformation and missional witness, complete with the darkness and light imagery and the death and resurrection imagery, is so close to Paul's letter to the Ephesians and parallels so well. So I believe that is where Paul gets the thought from, and I would have to say this is an unveiling of the true light that was spoken of by Isaiah. And that's my digging deeper nugget. I hope you enjoy. Let's pray. Yahweh, Father, I thank you today for your so many blessings, Yahweh. I give you praise and honor and glory, Father. Father, I thank you for letting me get through this. This was uh, extremely, extremely hard for me, and and, uh, I know it's a technical sermon, but Father, you can do what you want to with the words, and uh, I'm I'm just a mouse. So Father, I pray that you would... Let them sink in. Let the people meditate on it, Father. Let your church meditate on it. Father, I pray that they'd be Bereans and we would be Bereans. We would always study your word, take it home, and see that uh, what we read and what we hear. So, Father, I give you praise today for your only begotten Son. I'm so thankful for him and his work at the tree for us, Father. I just uh, I lift him up today and lift you up for him, Father. I pray that you keep us safe until we come back here to worship again in your house, Father. Until then... We ask all these things in your holy son's name.